0: This morning we're continuing our look at the gospel of Mark. And we've been going through this for over a year now, but we are approaching the final stretch. And we are in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 43. If you have a Bible, Mark is about three fourths of the way through your Bible. And then you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke and John Mark, and then chapter 14, big numbers are the chapters, little numbers are the verses. We're in 14, starting in verse 43, and we'll read to verse 52. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, It is a gift for us to gather here in the name of Christ, the only true King, and to look at your word, to sing songs, to pray, to read together. We give you praise for forming your people. We give you praise for allowing us to exercise that this morning by gathering as a local expression of your body. We do pray that our worship would honor you we pray that you would bless our gathered worship that we would be a word-centered church that we would center everything that we do around what you have prescribed that our whole lives not just the worship this morning would be driven by your word we pray that you would raise up more word-centered churches here in Columbus thank you for the ones that you have raised up Lord we pray that you would continue to bless them and that you would continue to allow faithful gospel ministry to be done there. Lord, we pray in particular for our brothers and sisters across the world in Ukraine. Lord, we are gifted to be able to gather here without the fear of a bombing. where our brothers and sisters in Ukraine don't have that gift this morning. We pray for them over there as they are unable to gather, that you would sustain them, that you would give them grace, that they would be encouraged by the hope that Jesus is the true king and that he will come back and make all things right and that wicked rulers will be no more. We pray for the displaced citizens, that you would protect them. We pray for the safety of those who are still in Ukraine. God, we pray that Vladimir Putin's plans would be thwarted, that you would bring him to repentance. Lord, even as we ask that, there's some unbelief on our ends. Help our unbelief. Lord, we also pray for unreached people groups over there. Think of the Tatar people, the Crimean people of Ukraine, nearly 300,000 people, less than 1% have embraced the gospel, we ask that you would use this war to allow the gospel to fall onto fertile soil among the Tatar and the Crimean people. We ask that as we go through this passage in Mark 14 that we would be shaped by your word, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to see and help us to hear. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So in 2004, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, was released. Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. And at that point, um, I, would, I would have considered myself a Christian, but I did not really know my Bible. And so I knew that Jesus died for me, and I trusted that he had paid for my sin, but I didn't know the events leading up to it. Um, and so when a friend and his dad took us, To go see the passion of christ i was excited i was like yes jesus i'm all for jesus i'm a follower of him and and i'm grateful for what he has done for me but if i were honest i i knew harry potter books better than i knew the bible and my understanding of jesus at that point there had only been five harry potter books released so my understanding of jesus was that he was essentially the real life dumbledore there was no way anyone could overpower jesus just a Just a snap of his finger. All it took was one word and he could overpower any adversary. And so the passage I just read, when that scene came up in the Passion of the Christ, I was excited. I sat there and I thought, okay, Jesus is about to work these guys. They just snuck up on him in the middle of the night. They have no idea what is coming. Jesus is about To show how powerful he is he's about to show that he's god and he is going to overpower these guys and i waited and it didn't happen and then i continued to wait any minute now it's going to happen jesus is going to show who he is still waited any minute and it never happened and i thought to myself why would jesus who is god in the flesh why would he allow himself to be betrayed and overtaken by his enemies. Why would he let that happen? Jesus, just, just show them who you are. Just show them how powerful you are. And then they'll realize that this is the son of God and they'll fall down and worship you. And then you can make your way to the cross like I know that you did, but I didn't know how it led up to that. And then you can just go right there and offer yourself up and more people will believe you. Why, don't, why, did, you let them, why did you let this betrayal take place? Why did you let them overpower you like that? And this morning, as we look at the text, I hope that we'll answer that question. But I also hope that we'll see that because Jesus, the innocent one, was seized and betrayed, the guilty ones may go free. Because the innocent one was betrayed and seized, the guilty ones may go free. And so if you've been following with us here in Mark, we have recently gone over the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper. And then after that, the disciples made their way to the Mount of Olives. And when they got to the Mount of Olives, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus went to pray. And as he prayed, he asked his disciples just just to watch, just to keep watch. And they failed and failed and failed. And then Jesus, right before we started reading this passage in verse 42, he says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So his praying has stopped. He asked God to remove the cup. He asked God to remove his judgment from Jesus. There's any other way. He asked the Father to, to let that other way be done. There was no other way. So he had risen up now and he said, look, my betrayer is about to be here. And then verse 43 says, while he was still speaking, while he was still saying that, Judas and the crowd showed up. And so as we look at this passage, there are three things you'll see in your bulletin. As we divide this up, we'll see Judas's betrayal. We'll see Jesus' arrest, and we'll see the followers' freedom. Judas' betrayal, Jesus' arrest, and the followers' freedom. So starting with that first one, Judas' betrayal, Judas just arrived on the scene in verse 43. He just said Jesus was literally saying, let's let's get up, my betrayer's at hand. while he's speaking, Judas and the crowd show up. Now, this crowd was made up of a hodgepodge of different people. You see, there's religious leaders, there's temple officials, as the Gospel of Luke tells us, there are soldiers, as John tells us, and they've brought a bunch of weapons to arrest Jesus. And Jesus points out to them, look, you could have arrested me at any point. Why why are you showing up? This seems a little bit over the top. It'd be like like some senators showing up to your house and the military showing up to your house for a parking ticket. Seem a little bit over the top. Jesus is pointing out, this, this is a little over You could have arrested me in broad daylight, but you chose not to. But it's also unique to, to notice that all the way up to this point, when we read about a crowd, the crowd has not at even once been hostile toward Jesus. And now we see a crowd showing up, and they, for the first time, are hostile toward him. And from this point forward, for the rest of the gospel, Every time we see a crowd, they're going to be hostile toward Jesus. And so this point in the gospel, it's not a big surprise. We knew that Judas was eventually going to betray Jesus. We saw that in Mark 3, where it was said that Judas would be the one to betray him. So we've kind of been anticipating this, but now we see it. And the passage in verse 43 says, while he was still speaking, Judas came. One of the twelve... That phrase, one of the 12, is used eight times in the New Testament. All eight times, it's a negative connotation. It's in a negative context. One of the eight times was toward Thomas when he doubted Jesus' resurrection. He said, Thomas, one of the 12, one of his closest companions, doubted. It's a negative context. Could you believe that one of the 12 doubted? And then the other seven are used for Judas. It emphasizes the severity of Judas's betrayal to Jesus. This is, wasn't just a guy who knew Jesus. This was one of the 12. One of his closest companions. Somebody who was intimate with Christ. Jesus had 12 intimate friends. Judas was one of them. And he is the one to betray Jesus. As, we re- as you come across that passage, one of the 12 in your Bible reading, think of it as uh, when you hear about family betrayals these days, something <laughs> big happens and you realize that maybe a brother betrayed a brother and you say, can you believe he did that? His own flesh and blood. It's like what's happening here. Can you believe he did that? One of the 12. One of the 12. And the gospel writers aren't shy to, they, they don't shy away from that when they talk about Judas. They say, Judas, one of the twelve. Judas, one of the twelve. His betrayal of Jesus is severe, but he does it with a sign. We see Judas telling the crowd, The one I will kiss is the man. He's the one that you're to arrest, he's the one that you're to seize. Ironically, that kiss was a sign of affection, and it was a common greeting between those who were friends to greet them with a kiss, similar to a hug or a handshake today. But Judas says, the one I kiss, he's the man. And it's not that the the crowd didn't know who Jesus was. I mean, they had watched him during the day, but it's dark out now. And so they're in this garden, it's dark. They're trying to figure out which guy they're supposed to lay hands on. And Judas even says, take him or seize him and lead him away under guard. So this is meant to be a kind of a covert operation. The majority of the public at, at this point still likes Jesus. And so they want to do this in a quiet way. They don't want to cause, Judas isn't concerned necessarily about Jesus's safety, lead him under guard. He's concerned about being identified and causing an uproar because the majority of the public at this point likes him. Not everybody, but much. And so Judas doesn't want to publicly be identified himself as a betrayer of his friends. But he also doesn't want Jesus to be publicly identified because it could cause an uproar. And so they sneak up and they attempt to arrest him at night. And Judas, at this point, had resolved in his mind that he is going to betray Jesus. He's made that decision. However, the action had not yet been done yet. It was this sign, this kiss, to identify Jesus, that would be the final action that would follow through Jesus', or excuse me, Judas's betrayal. And so this morning, Christian, something for us to see here in the life of Judas is that oftentimes the decision to turn away from Christ, maybe not entirely, but maybe in a certain part of your life, is often done long before the action actually happens. Judas had made the decision to betray Jesus, but had not yet followed through with it. Is there an area in your life where perhaps you've resolved to stop fighting that particular sin? Or you've just resolved, I can't win this battle, and so I'll pursue holiness in every other way, but this area, I'm not that concerned about. I'm not convinced I can win it. I would encourage you to reconsider. confess that to Christ, confess that to other brothers and sisters, would encourage you to consider the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify. But Judas had made the decision, but he had not yet followed through with it. And now we see Jesus' arrest where Judas does follow through with it. So look with me in verse 45. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Judas, ironically, betrays Jesus with flattery. He calls him Rabbi, which means someone who's a a teacher. It's an honorable title. It's a respectful title given to someone who's a teacher of the Mosaic law. So he calls him Rabbi. He honors him with that title, and then he kisses him, a sign of affection. And it's with these things, honor, honor an affection that he actually gives him over to his death. Now, the, the word kiss there is actually, actually—it's uh, if you look at the original, there's a thing in front of the word that would imply that it was an emphatic kiss. It was a profuse kiss. Now, it wasn't romantic, but it was to make it very clear, ah, Jesus, rabbi. And he makes a scene to make sure that Everyone who's looking for Jesus can identify this. Okay, this is the kiss Judas is talking about. He makes a scene to make it very clear who it is that needs to be arrested. It was to clearly identify Jesus to the crowd because as we said earlier, it is dark. Reminds us of Proverbs 27, 6. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse or excessive are the kisses of an enemy. Judas claiming to be an intimate friend with Jesus. Judas, being one of the 12, with his profuse and excessive kisses to identify Jesus, actually identifies himself as an enemy of Jesus. And so as soon as that happens, they lay hands on Jesus, and then some commotion ensues. Someone pulls out a sword, and John tells us that that someone, you may not be surprised, was Peter. Peter, who tends to say things abruptly and do things abruptly, he pulls out a sword and tries to defend Jesus, and he ends up lopping off Malchus' ear. Now, Alistair Begg points out, he said, Peter was either really good with a sword, or he was really bad with a sword. Said <laughs> so that either his precision was tremendous, and he just knew how to just scare the guy enough, or he couldn't even get it, couldn't even hit, land it onto his head. And so... Peter's either really good or really bad with a sword. But Jesus, nonetheless, tells him, put the sword away. He says, put it away. Matthew, Luke, John all identify this in their version of this story. Jesus says, look, this isn't how the mission goes forward. He says, put the sword away. Could I not, with one word, call 12 legions of angels from my father who would come to my defense? And he could have. And that's what I expected as I was watching the Passion of the Christ all those years ago. But he doesn't. Instead, Jesus is treated like a criminal. Look at me in verse 48. Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? They're treating him as if he is some violent criminal. Not only are we going to need a couple people, we need a whole crowd. And hey, everyone, bring your weapons with you. Because this guy, like we really need, we definitely need to make sure that nobody gets hurt here, but this guy could be dangerous. And Jesus is like, wait a second, where are you getting that idea from? You could have arrested me at any point during the day. You saw me teaching in the temple. But he responds and he says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. He doesn't call those 12 legions of angels that he could have called because he's allowing the scriptures to be fulfilled. Now, the question is what scriptures? Commentators have pointed out that there are two that are likely the scriptures he has referenced. The first one is Isaiah 53:12, 12, where Isaiah talks about the coming Messiah being numbered with the transgressors. He'd be counted as a transgressor. We know Jesus was not a transgressor. He was perfectly holy. If there was any transgression in him, then he would not be an acceptable sacrifice. He had to be perfectly holy. However, he would be treated as one who had transgression. And so Jesus points it out. He's like, hey, am I I a robber? Have I done something wrong here? You're treating me like a, a criminal. But he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled so he would be numbered with the transgressors, even though he himself was not one. But then also, we've mentioned this in a couple sermons ago, Zechariah 13, 7, where we read the prophet say, or God is telling his people that he will strike this coming shepherd. And when he strikes the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. Jesus has been telling his disciples, you will all depart from me. And they insisted, no, we won't. We absolutely will not. He says, you really will. And then they say, even if we must die, we will not abandon you. And yet, as soon as he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled, we see in verse 50, they all left him and fled. The disciples who said they would never do that. Peter, who insisted he would never do that. They all left Christ and, fled. and Jesus is now abandoned by them, which is a fulfillment of verse 27 earlier in this chapter when Jesus tells them, you will all fall away. And then he quotes Zechariah 13:7, And so Jesus is accurate here, but here's the thing, is that all the disciples just a few hours ago were in the room when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And James Edwards points out, he says, all drank the cup to identify with Jesus. They all drank the cup. And then they all pledged to die with him. See that in verse 31. And then, just a few hours later, all abandoned Jesus and flee. Amazing how quickly things can change. Far be it from us to think too highly of ourselves as the disciples did here. We must always be examining ourselves and letting scripture examine us and asking God, Lord, if there's any hidden way in me, if there's any way that I need to repent of, please make me known of it. Because these disciples who walked with him intimately just a few hours ago partook in the, the first Lord's Supper, they are now all abandoning him. Far be it from us to consider ourselves greater than the disciples. And so Jesus, here, Although he was perfectly righteous, although he was perfectly faithful, although there was no transgression in him, he is treated like a criminal. And if we're honest with ourselves, like Judas, we are prone to honor Jesus with our lips and our heart to be far far from him. Judas approached him, called him rabbi. Judas approached him, showed him affection. But if we're honest, we can all have a little bit of Judas in us where we know the right thing to say, but our heart is actually far from Christ. This is especially true for those in the room who grew up in a Christian household. You know the right things to say. You've heard it for years. You must be careful to not be like Judas in this way. And then if you're in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, I encourage you to look at Judas closely, because Judas here is a prime example. He's a great example of someone who looks at Jesus as a good teacher, but does not submit to him as Lord. He sees him as a good teacher. He calls him rabbi. I think he's being honest when he calls Jesus rabbi. He views him as a teacher, but he is not submitting to him, does not view him as Lord. And in order to be a true follower of Jesus, we must embrace both that he is, in fact, a good teacher, and he is also king. He's also Lord. He is also master. And then, like Peter, how often do we reach for the wrong weapon of war? The scriptures tell us in Ephesians 6 that we are always at war, but we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil. That's who our war is against. And like Peter, we are quick to pull out the wrong weapon for the warfare that we are involved in. In fact, at the end of that passage, Ephesians 6, where Paul is talking about the armor of God, the, he gets, at, the, at the end of it, he gets to the offensive. Okay, so you put on the armor. Now, what are you going to use offensively? And he says, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. It's worth noting that Hebrews 4:12 when talking about the word, the word of God says that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. We are engaged in warfare. However, let's not reach for the wrong weapons. What we've been given is the word of God and prayer. The word of God is more effective than Peter's sword. The word of God is more effective than our political campaigns. It's more effective than our social media posts, our retweets, our stories. It's more effective than our military strength. The word of God is more effective than our rhetoric. The word of God and prayer are the two weapons we are given. They are our primary weapons and they are our most effective weapons. The church throughout history has had this tension of going toward other weapons to use. It's not to say that that God hasn't given us other means of engaging in spiritual warfare, but the primary and most effective weapons that we have been given are the word of God and prayer. Let's not overlook those. So we see Judas' betrayal, we see Jesus' arrest, and now we see the followers' freedom. These last two verses are unique are strange. So let's read them. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The first recorded streaker. <laughs> right here in Mark 14. So what do we make of this? Okay, so this young man is wearing nothing but a linen cloth. So there's some things to notice here. Linen cloths were typically worn by wealthy, those who are wealthy. And this man only had a linen cloth on. So I don't think he was trying to stage some kind of protest. I think he was in a hurry. And commentators point out that the Man who is writing this gospel, John Mark, came from a wealthy family. His mother's house may have been the one where the disciples and Jesus had the Lord's Supper. And so the working theory is that perhaps after the Lord's Supper, the author of this gospel, John Mark, wanted to follow the disciples. And so as they were wrapping up, he quickly put on a linen cloth, realized they were leaving, and followed them from a distance. That's one option we're honest we can't know and it's pure speculation but commentators most commentators will point out that's probably who this young man was because this young man running off naked was in no other gospel it's only in John Marks and so sometimes artists like to put a little bit of a Easter egg so to speak in their work to say hey this, this was me without making it terribly obvious so potentially That's what Mark was doing here. However, here's what we need to see with this, is that that young man, whoever it was, he was seized as well. Four times in this passage, we see the word seize or seized used. There's a point being made here. Someone is being captured. Someone is being seized. Someone is being arrested. And another group is going free. In this passage... This young man is seized, yet he goes free, but he goes free naked. Now, the scriptures, as you do a word study on nakedness, you will find that that word is used at least 40 times in the Bible. And 39 out of the 40 are negative connotations. The only positive connotation of nakedness is in Genesis 2.25, the last verse of Genesis 2 after God creates. He says, he created man, he created woman, and it was very good. And then he says, they were naked and unashamed. It's the only part, only point in scripture where we see nakedness in a positive light. And then Genesis 3 happens. There's a fall. Sin enters the world. And now every usage of the word after is a negative one, a shameful one. So James Brooks, commenting on this, he says, Mark may also have wanted to associate nakedness, which is an image of shame, with anyone who abandons Jesus. This individual was caught, and he abandoned Jesus, and he ran away shameful. He ran away naked. However, what I want us to see Even with these just two passages these two verses, is that Jesus' followers, which this man was following nearby, they all abandon him, despite him being faithful, despite him being innocent, they abandon him. Yet it's them who are unfaithful to their master who escape from their enemy. It's the unfaithful disciples who escape, and it's faithful Jesus who goes into captivity. John provides more detail on this. In John 18, his version of the story, Jesus responds to the crowd. He says, I told you that I am he. Let these men go. Jesus is being portrayed by John as a second Moses. Jesus says the same word that Moses heard in the bush. Ego I me, I am. And then he follows it with let these men go. Moses, after hearing who I am was, was told to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Jesus, in John's version of this passage, says, I am. Let these men go. Jesus goes into captivity so that his people may go free. George Attlee, a young Englishman with the heart of a hero, was engaged in the Central African Mission when he was attacked by a a party of natives. He had with him a Winchester repeating rifle with 10 loaded chambers. The party that attacked him was completely at his mercy. He didn't have a rifle, he had a rifle. They were completely at his mercy. And so calmly and quickly, he summed up the situation and he concluded that if he killed them, it would do the mission more harm and if he allowed them to take his life. So, as a lamb led to the slaughter, he allowed them to overtake him. And when his body was found in the stream, his rifle was also found with all ten chambers still loaded. He could have easily utilized the power that he had to over- overtake those who came to overpower him but he didn't because it would ultimately harm the mission. Jesus laid down his life so that the mission of redemption would go forward. He could have overpowered that crowd as easily as anything else he's ever done. But he laid his life down so that the mission of redemption may go forward because the faithful one, because the innocent one was seized, the unfaithful and the guilty ones get to go free. Jesus allowed himself. As I was thinking about why would Jesus allow himself to be overpowered by this group, here's the reason. Jesus allowed himself to be seized by these sinful men because Jesus was the only man who had no sin. And so therefore, he was the only acceptable sacrifice. He's the only one who could go to the cross and faithfully represent mankind and God and be an acceptable sacrifice who has no blemish. As you read throughout the Old Testament, you see bring a lamb without blemish, bring a goat without blemish, a sacrifice without blemish to atone for sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God who has no sin. And so he allowed himself to be taken by sinful men. He knew that he was the only acceptable sacrifice. The question for us this morning do we know that? Do you know that Jesus is the only acceptable sacrifice for your sin? Have you called on the name of Christ to take away your sin? Are you trusting in what he has done on the cross to justify you before God? Not your church attendance, not the good works that you do, not anything outwardly, but are you throwing yourself entirely on Christ? Because he is the only acceptable sacrifice prior to the fall, we were all naked and unashamed in Adam. And Now, after the fall, we're all in a state of being naked and ashamed. We're all bare before God. There's nothing that we can cover that he cannot see. But, but if you are in Christ, then you can say with the prophet Isaiah, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. If you are in Christ, you have been moved from the place of being naked and ashamed to being covered with his righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for going into captivity on our behalf. Jesus, thank you for being faithful even when your followers were unfaithful. Help us this morning to walk faithfully To be reminded that we can be covered by your righteousness through faith and faith alone. Father, thank you for establishing this plan. Thank you, Father, for not removing the cup from Jesus. Holy Spirit, help us to consider how to move forward from here, how to apply this to our lives and to live faithfully in light of it.